This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 1, which can be found on page 878 of the Church Bibles. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thanks, James, for reading for us. Thank you, Izzy and band, for leading us in our worship. Um, Two things that will really help you as we look at this together. One, just have the Bible open in front of you. That's page 878, and that will help us just as we go through. And also, just on the service sheet that um, was inside the Bible that you were given when you came in, uh, on the back there's an outline of where we're going. So that might help you as you go through. But we need the Lord's help. So let's pray as we begin. Paul writes to the Corinthians, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our Father, it is our desire this morning, as we read and seek to understand your words, that you would shine your light into our hearts by your Spirit, that we might see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we may know you, our Father, better. Amen. Well, we have before us in this passage this most wonderful eyewitness account in the Gospel of Luke, probably one of the top five Bible stories loved by children. And to be honest, it's one of my top five uh, as well. Now Luke told us at the beginning of his book that he wrote his account so that we might have certainty, certainty about the things that we've been taught, that we might be certain about Jesus, about who he is, about his life, about his death and resurrection, but also that we might be certain about what that means for us, and in particular what it means for our salvation. And that's the question that's in view here in Luke 18 and 19. How can anyone be saved? That question came up last week. The disciples asked Jesus that. And Jesus said that with man that was impossible. Salvation was impossible but that it would be made possible by God. 
And he went on to explain that we would be saved by his death on the cross for our sins and by having our eyes opened to that truth. But here in Luke 19, 1-10, we're given more information in the answer to that question. So there are three things in our passage today that are on the handout for you. Why we need saving, how to be saved, and what this salvation brings about in our lives. Why we need saving, how to be saved, and what this salvation brings about. So here we go. Why we need saving. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. So we're on our journey with Jesus and we meet Zacchaeus. We're told he's a tax collector, but he's not just any old tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. And he's not just any old chief tax collector. He's the chief tax collector of Jericho. Jericho is a city several miles east of Jerusalem. And it's on the main trade route to Arabia and to the eastern lands. It's prime location for taxation. If you're going to be a tax collector, this is the place to be. You are going to make a packet. And Zacchaeus has done just that. He is minted. He's filthy rich. And it is filthy. Because though Zacchaeus is a Jew, tax collectors worked for the Roman occupiers. They got paid a large salary, but it was taken for granted that they could overcharge and then skim off the top for themselves, for their luxury mansions, for their yachts on the Dead Sea, and for their blacked-out Range Rover chariots. When the crowd call him a sinner in verse 7, there's no disputing it. Even he doesn't dispute it. He has made himself rich through corruption and bribery at the expense of his fellow citizens. Now we're told one other thing about him, of course, uh, that he's vertically challenged. He's short, he's very short, verse 3. It's just one of those interesting details that Luke uh, throws in. That, of course, might build a picture of us for him. It may have been a source of ridicule for him throughout his life. And it kind of adds to his notoriety in the region, doesn't it, as this well-known uh, figure. Now, Zacchaeus is a man that we would never expect to be interested in someone like Jesus. See, tax collectors are the kind of archetypal sinner in the Gospel of Luke. They're known for their greed, for their love of money, for their theft and their corruption and their lack of shame about it. Not only that, they've publicly rejected being one of God's people because they've sold their souls to serve the Romans. And throughout the Gospel, Luke's been making this point to us that many of us are just like tax collectors. Not that we've literally done what they've done. We may have done worse, we may have done less, but his point is that we're like them in our hearts. Like the younger brother in the prodigal son's parable, our hearts have rejected God as they have. We've loved other things more than we love him. 
We've chased after the things of this world instead of the things of God. We've pursued money and comfort and power and fame. We've neglected justice and the love of our neighbours. We've served ourselves instead of serving others. We are, in other words, sinners. And the Bible is very clear that our sins bring the judgment of God upon us. Death and eternal judgment in hell. Sinners are lost for eternity. And therefore, we need saving. But notice here, there is another kind of person in this story. They're in the background, but they're there. It's the crowd. So the crowd here, they're interested in Jesus, aren't they? They're following Jesus around. They're gathering around him. And by and large, of course, they haven't done what Zacchaeus has done. They have respectability. But look at their attitude. It's in verse 7. It comes out when they go to see, when they see that Jesus has gone to Zacchaeus' house. Verse 7. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And for those of us who've been in Luke for a while, we recognise that statement, we recognise that attitude. It's the attitude of the religious folk, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes. They've said that many times. But here in Jericho, as we near Jerusalem, it's now on the lips of the crowd. And the crowd in the first few verses, they seem to represent physically uh, what they are spiritually. They're a block to people seeing Jesus. They got in the way of the blind man last week, and here they get in the way of the short man. They've thought themselves to be so righteous, and they've looked down their noses at others who don't meet their standards, shutting them out from the grace of Jesus Christ. So if Zacchaeus is like the younger brother, well, here's the older brother, the crowd. Self-righteous, proud, arrogant. They despise people like this man and they grumble at Jesus when he gives his attention to them. So there are two types of people. There are sinners who know they're lost, like Zacchaeus. And there are the righteous, or the self-righteous, I should say, who are just as lost but they proudly don't believe that they are. Both need salvation, both are under God's judgments, and both will face eternity in hell. But as we'll see, whereas the sinner responds to the grace of Jesus, the self-righteous refuse salvation because they simply do not believe that they need it. That's the first thing that we learn, why we need to be saved because we're sinners, or because we're self-righteous, which is to be a sinner, but just not believe that you are. That's why we need to be saved. Next, this account teaches us how to be saved. How to be saved. Now, we don't expect Zacchaeus to have any interest in Jesus, but what we find is the opposite. In fact, he's desperate, isn't he, to see Jesus? What if you notice that? Look at verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. 
but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He must have heard about him. Maybe he's heard about the healing of the blind beggar just, in the, uh, just outside the town. Or maybe he's heard the common accusation about Jesus, that this is a man who's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Or maybe he's heard the parable that Jesus told in chapter 18, that of the tax collector who cried out for mercy from God and went home justified. And he wonders, maybe that could be true for me too. Well, we don't know for sure why, and we don't really know for sure how he heard about Jesus, but we do know for sure that he really wants to see him. He seeks to get to him, but he's too short that his view is blocked by the crowd. But he won't let that stop him. He runs on ahead. I think that's significant. Jewish men didn't run. That wasn't respectable. Even more undignified than that, he climbs a tree. And notice the detail. It's an eyewitness account. It's a sycamore tree. But look at his desire. See, all this shows us that Zacchaeus no longer cares what other people think. He must get to see Jesus. And that's a key part of how we are saved. We find that we have this desire in our hearts and nothing will stop us from finding out who this Jesus person is. We stop worrying about what others think. We, we stop caring if we're ridiculed. We just have to see him. We have to know who he is. Maybe that's you at the moment. You're here this morning because you know that there's something about this man and you need to find out more. And that's a good place to be in. But it's not enough to be saved. Just seeing him is not enough. And our story teaches us that. Jesus is walking through the town. And it looks like he's just passing on through. He looks like he's going on to Jerusalem. But verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So pay attention to how this happens. Jesus stops and he looks at this small man in the tree and he calls him by his name. And he invites himself into Zacchaeus' life. Now that's not very polite, is it? You don't invite yourself round to someone else's house for dinner. You wait to be asked. But I doubt very much, to be honest, that Zacchaeus would ever dare to ask if Jesus would come to his house. Yet Jesus invites himself in. All these people crowding around Jesus, but he singles out this one man, a sinner, a chief tax collector, and says, I'm coming into your life. And what does Zacchaeus do? Well, he rushes down the tree and he receives him joyfully. That's actually Luke's way of talking about faith in this section. Um, If you remember last week, we were told to receive the kingdom of God like a child receives a gift. 
And here, Zacchaeus receives Jesus. He embraces him. He welcomes him into his home and into his life. And this is how he's saved. Jesus will say at the end, salvation has come to this house. I'd like to just spend a little bit of time thinking about this because we see here two things about how we're saved. So we've seen, we've seen what it takes from our perspective. When someone's saved, they seek Jesus with determination and they joyfully receive him into their lives. They place their faith in him, they embrace him and welcome him. But when we look closely at the way this story unfolds, we see something else going on because though initially it seems like Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, what's revealed to us is actually that Jesus is seeking him. It's almost like Jesus has come to Jericho just to find this one man so that he might be saved. That's what I think verse 5 and 6 show us. Jesus could just pass by Zacchaeus, but he won't. And he knows Zacchaeus' name. And he insists that he's coming to stay at his house. And he does all this for Zacchaeus, the immoral and corrupt tax collector, the thief, the traitor, the one they all hate. Jesus is unashamed to show the crowd that he's come to save Zacchaeus and all those like him. If we're in any doubt about that, Jesus makes it explicit in the final verse, doesn't he? For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Came where? Came to this earth, yes, but also came to Jericho, that he might find this lost sinner who he knows by name and save him. So this is how we're saved. It's how anyone is saved. It's by divine initiative. Jesus walks right into our lives. And the self-righteous folks, though they they despise Jesus at this point, they're exactly right in what they say in verse 7, aren't they? He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Can you think of a better description for what a Christian is. Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a person who's a sinner. It's exactly right. Zacchaeus is only saved because Jesus insists upon it. Puritan Matthew Henry put it like this, Jesus brings his own welcome. He opens the heart and inclines it to receive him. We respond, but it's all of grace. Perhaps you've found yourself drawn to see him. You've understood and you believe that his death on the cross was to pay for your sins, to bear God's judgment in your place. You believe that he rose again from the dead to grant you new life. And now today you hear his voice calling your name, saying, I must come in. Can I urge you, do not wait. Do what Zacchaeus does and come down from the tree quickly and receive him joyfully. 
Do that and he will say of your hearts, salvation has come. Now from that point on, everything changes. And that's what we learn next from our story. We see what salvation brings about. And it's threefold. It's repentance, restitution, and reconciliation. And they're all here in verses 8 to 10. So first of all, repentance. The uh, Narnia Books author, C.S. Lewis, he once wrote this. If conversion to Christianity makes no improvement in a man's outward actions, if he continues to be just as snobbish or spiteful or envious or ambitious as he was before, then I think that we must suspect that his conversion was largely imaginary. Repentance is what receiving Jesus brings about in your life. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What does Zacchaeus call Jesus here? He calls him Lord. And that's really the heartbeat of repentance. His life is under new ownership. Jesus has not just entered his home, he's entered his heart. And Zacchaeus acknowledges that he's Lord of his life now. The repentance is that. It's a change of mind, a change of heart, to say, I'm no longer in charge. I'm no longer Lord of my own life. Jesus is Lord. And I'm going to live his way now, not my way. In fact, you cannot live the way that you used to live. Or else, as C.S. Lewis says, it's just imaginary, not genuine. Now, in Zacchaeus' life, of course, there is one big area where he's been living his own way and not God's way, and that's that of money and wealth. Money's been his God, sold his soul for wealth, but now, in a moment, that's changed. See, the purse strings are immediately loosened, he gives away half his wealth to the poor. That's him repenting of a sin of omission, he, something he should have done but he hasn't done. And he returns what he's stolen, which is repenting of a sin of commission, something that he has done and he needs to get, make that right. Has ever a man changed so quickly? What can it be except for a work of divine grace in his heart? This is what happens when someone receives Jesus into their life, when they receive the salvation he offers, they gain a repentant heart. He doesn't have to be told, does he, what to do. He knows that he needs to because Jesus is now his Lord. Now there is here a subset of repentance which is worth us noticing and that is that his repentance includes restitution. Now we don't often talk about this and I think because it's right here in the passage, we should give some attention to it. So the Old Testament law, Leviticus chapter 6 and Numbers chapter 5 in particular, said that those who stole from or defrauded their neighbours, when they realised their wrongdoing, that is when they were convicted 
uh, in their hearts over that sin, not only were they to go and obtain atonement for it by offering sacrifices, but they were also to make restitution for it. They were to give back what they stole, but not just that, they were also to add one-fifth of the value to it. So they were to get right with God by sacrifice for sins, but they were also to make it right with those they had sinned against. Now Zacchaeus, his situation, he's a, he's a tax collector, he's a successful tax collector, he's going to have kept ledgers, he's going to know uh, what he must repay, and to whom. And he commits to do so right away, but he goes above and beyond what the law requires, doesn't he? It's four times the amount. He knows that he's got to set right things that, with those who he sinned against. And that needs to take the form of restitution. He does all he can to do so. In fact, another Puritan, a guy called Thomas Brooks, he described repentance as the vomit of the soul. It's a pretty disgusting image. Um, but it does capture what we see. It's as if his, his soul needs to avoid itself of all of the sin that's poisoned it for so long. That needs to come out of him. And that's what he does instinctively. Now, all, all sins need to be repented of. But there are some sins that you can't really make restitution for. So sins like um, lust or coveting, like it's quite hard to make restitution for those things. Though we do need to repent of them, um, rid them of, from our minds and from our hearts. And of course it's hard to make restitution for to people who you've sinned against who are just no longer around. So Zacchaeus probably couldn't pay back some of these people who they've moved away, um, or perhaps who died, although maybe he could make restitution to their children. But where we can, we should. Now this is a, a principle um, that my mum um, had in her life, and she taught it to me and my brother. Um, so let me just give you a couple of examples. My brother, Ben, uh, when we, he was about four or five, um, we, did a trip, we went on a trip to Asda, a local supermarket. Other supermarkets are available. And um, did the normal kind of trip there. And they had, uh, in the store, they had these uh, pick-and-mix racks, which I thought had gone away, but then I saw one in Tesco the other day, so they've come back. Um, did the shop, got back home, and my mum discovered that my brother had put a couple of cola bottles in his sock and brought them home with him. Um, so... He obviously got told off, but what, what, he, what she then did with him was take him back to the store. She found the security guard and made him hand over the slightly sweaty and stinking cola bottles to him. And she must have sort of winked at the security guard or something because he was very good and he got down next to him and said, look, are you sorry for what you've done? Yeah. We do it again? No. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't enough for her for him to be sorry, he had to make restitution where he could. He had to return what he'd stolen. Now, it'd be very nice if I could just talk about my brother's sins. Um, but let me just give you an example of my own as well. Aged about nine or ten, uh, in the classroom at school, you used to get these, um, a compass, not the one you find the directions with, but like the one with the metal spike on the end, and you put a pencil in it to draw a circle. And we had one of those. I wasn't particularly bright, um, so what I did was I scratched into the desk, and I was really not very bright, so I scratched my own name. So 
they know, I should have scratched someone else's name, but I did my own. So the teacher clearly knew who'd done it. And again, my mum, she got wind of this um, and said, what I had to do was I had to go into see the headmaster with her and she made me take my pocket money and hand that over as a repair um, thing for, for the desk. And then I had to go and sand the desk down to smooth it back over again. Now, is that strict? Yes, yeah, it's, it's strict. Even by the standards of the 80s, that's pretty strict. <laughs> but it does teach this principle, and I remember it, that when you sin against people, you need to be repentant. You need to be sorry for your sin. But where you're able to, you need to make restitution. And that doesn't just, um, it doesn't just sort of happen. You have to force yourself to do that. It's painful to do that. But it does restore the relationships with those that you've sinned against. And so we need to take that seriously. So if there's something that you've stolen, and it, just think, it, maybe it was even years ago, you need to return it with extra. If there's tax that you've not paid, you need to pay it. If you've been living selfishly, if you've been spending your wealth on yourself, you need to commit now to serving others, to giving to them and giving to the work of the gospel. If your work means that you've neglected your wife or your kids, you need to put time in the diary now to spend with them. See, we are to be repentant, but we're also to make restitution. We're to express that repentance in restitution when we can. Now, that's not done to bring about our salvation. No, the salvation that Jesus gives, naturally or even supernaturally, brings about this in our lives. It brings repentance and restitution Finally, it also brings about reconciliation. Zacchaeus is reconciled. He's reconciled to God vertically and to God's people horizontally. And we've already seen this to some degree. Zacchaeus finds himself welcomed by Jesus. He's reconciled to God in the flesh. And the restitution that he'll make to others, that will do much to reconcile him to the community in which he lives. But Jesus wants to make this explicit to all who are listening, and he does so in verse 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You see? Jesus announces to all that the repentance he's shown demonstrates that Zacchaeus has been reconciled to God. Salvation has come to this house today at that moment. But then look at what he says. Since he also is a son of Abraham. Now that must have amazed all who heard it, Zacchaeus in particular, because he sold his people to the Romans. He knew that he's outside the kingdom. He knows that he's outside the people of God. Everybody does. But Jesus says, not anymore, Zacchaeus. Even you have a place 
in the people of God. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist warned the crowd. He said, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And here he has. Zacchaeus is one such man, reconciled to God and to the people of God. How? By grace alone. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we need salvation. Why? Because we're sinners and because we're self-righteous. And for that we're under the judgment of God. We need to be saved. How? How can we be saved by the divine initiative of Jesus Christ who came to seek and save the lost, who came for you, that you, by his grace at work in your heart, might seek him and might receive him with joy as you trust in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. And then what? What does the salvation bring about in your life? Repentance? You're under new lordship, restitution where possible, and wonderfully, reconciliation, a new relationship with God the Father by the presence of the Spirit, and a new restored relationship with the people of God. All by grace, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we praise you for your grace. That you sent your Son into this world, that he came to seek and save the lost. Our Father, forgive us for our self-righteousness. Help us to realise our need of salvation. And we thank you that as we trust in Jesus, as we receive him, we can know forgiveness for all of our sins. From there, Father, we ask that you would change us. Help us to be repentant. Help us to make restitution where we can. And help us to rejoice in the reconciliation that we have with you and with each other. In Jesus' name. Amen.